Well, I'm waiting for it to quiet down a little bit. Uh, it's it's amazing in the providence of God that uh, he should he should plan that this sermon should come on Resurrection Sunday. I think if you hopefully you uh, you've had a read this week and you've meditated upon Christ and His work for you. Maybe hopefully this is something that you've gone one of these scriptures you've gone to to meditate on Christ. It's a very appropriate passage for Resurrection Sunday. Today we'll be looking at Matthew 12, verses 38 through the end of the chapter, verse 50. Last week we saw that the Pharisees received a very uh, stinging rebuke from Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees must have been stinging at this point from their uh, verbal defeat by Jesus Christ. Jesus, you remember, had shown them that their evil explanation of His miracles was... Uh, number one, it was absurd. And two, it was just contradictory to, to say that Christ was casting out demons by the power of Satan is absurd and contradictory. So his argument should have moved them to reconsider their position, but they did not, of course. And since they hated Jesus, rather than actually altering their views, they merely came at him from another direction. In other words, If the front door doesn't work, let's try the back door. That's essentially what they did. So they had already, uh, the religious leaders, I say, had, what they did is they demanded a miraculous sign from Jesus. Think about this. What were they thinking? Demanding a miraculous sign from Jesus. Jesus had already done many miracles, right? And these, of course, were true messianic signs, so uh, it's kind of silly of them to be asking for more. So therefore, you think about it, the demand for a sign was both insulting and at the same time disrespectful. It was also hypocritical because these men refused to believe that Jesus was the King of Kings. They refused to believe that He was the Jewish Messiah. Yet Jesus did offer them a sign, by the way. However, it was not the sign that they demanded. This sign would be given to the entire world, in fact. And it was the sign of His death and resurrection. It was a sign given to the whole world. And in fact, in our passage here in Matthew 12, Jesus actually called it the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, if you know anything about Jonah, you would know that this is... This is an appropriate illustration to, to be using at this point. Uh, there's somebody's artwork of Jonah after he had disobeyed God and got swallowed by this, this sea creature. Uh, you remember God used the sea creature to bring Jonah back to where he was supposed to go, and the sea creature spits him back up on the land, and Jonah ends up going to Nineveh, which is what God told him to do in the first place. But you remember the Bible says that Jonah was in the belly of this creature for three days and three nights. And so Jesus is using that, uh, that event to, uh, to look at something that was even greater. As if that wasn't miraculous enough, Jesus is saying there is one thing that is greater. There is an event, not just a person, but there's an event and a person greater than the prophet Jonah. 
Well, as we come to our passage, first of all, I want you to notice that the king denies the hypocrites a sign. In other words, let me put it in my own words, he's refusing to play their game. He's refusing to play their game. The hypocrites had an interesting demand there in verse 38. Look at their demand. Uh, Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Uh, notice uh, this is interesting in verse 38 there that the religious leaders actually called him teacher. You see that? The word teacher means rabbi. That was, that was a term of endearment. That was a ty- term of respect. So while they're being at least somewhat respectful, it shows, on the other hand, that they actually refuse to accept Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. So instead, what do they do? They demand a sign. You say, well, what, what, what's this sign? What is, what is a sign? Well, best definition I can give is a sign is a special divine proof. It's a special divine proof. Uh, the word refers to a symbolic wonder that, that points to the reality of the person performing that wonder. In other words, they're seeking a heaven-sent spectacle. They want their eyes and their mind to be amazed. Well, how does Jesus respond to that? <laughs> Look at Jesus' response in verse 39. But He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So first of all, notice here in verse 39, Jesus actually brings a charge against them. He's accusing them, literally, of being evil, and then figuratively, of being adulterous. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. They are evil and adulterous. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, the evil and adulterous generation here is alluding to the Israelites who died in the wilderness. Remember when they came, in the book of Exodus, they came out of Egypt. God did great miracles in those ten plagues. Pharaoh finally says, go, and they left. But remember when they they did get to the promised land, eventually most of them said, oh, no, no, there's giants in the land. We can't do this. This is impossible. And So they weren't trusting God. So God decided, well, I'm going to kill that whole generation off. And then the next generation will go into the promised land. So this is actually, Jesus is alluding and pointing to that time period when they were spiritually unfaithful to God. Uh, adultery, uh, often in the Old Testament is, when you look at the context, is referring to spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And notice also in verse 39 the word seek. The word seek. That word means they continually strive for this sign from God. It wasn't a one-time thing. This is something they're continually doing. It's in present tense. It's not a one-time event. It literally is their lifestyle. I also want you to notice that Jesus refuses to give a sign here in verse 39. Because verse 39 goes on to say, but no sign will be given to it, this, this, evil and adulterous generation, it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the the words there, will be given, are passive. 
even in our English language, it sounds passive. They will be given. It's showing that Jesus is, in this case, he's actually speaking for God the Father, who is refusing to answer their demand for this miraculous sign. Yet, at the same time, notice God is very gracious, and He actually does give them a sign, but it's not the demand they're asking for. In in this case, they're asking for something in the present, but God's sign is 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 um, um, something that was going to happen in the future, in, in this situation. So Jesus gives the example of Jonah here in verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice those words, for just as. For just as, the first three words of verse 40. Uh, those words are, are a conjunction, if you will. They're, they're joining words. They're kind of like glue, joining Jonah and Christ together here. They were both prophets, after all. Now, obviously, Christ believed the biblical account of Jonah, unlike liberals do today. Christ believed Jonah was a real person who actually got swallowed by a sea creature. And he was in the belly of that sea creature for three days and three nights. It was a real miracle that actually happened. Now, the words, so will, mean that Jesus had supernatural awareness of his coming death and resurrection. So it was, this, this was no surprise to him. Okay. Again, it's, it's pointing to Christ's deity. He was aware of what was going to happen to him in the future. He was totally aware that he was the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. So this text is a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. Do you understand that? So, because it is a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection, this also involves a, a, a potential problem. Well, it's a problem for some people. Because in the traditional handling of the events of Passion Week, Jesus, as you probably well know, was, according to the traditional handling, was crucified on Friday and was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. I'm sure you've all heard that, right? Yet, if that is correct, how can it be said that in our passage here that Jesus spent three days and three nights in the earth? You see a problem with the traditional handling? Three periods of light and three periods of darkness have to be accounted for. Therefore, I think this requirement is actually fatal to the Friday crucifixion theory. Now, if you look at the little um, illustration I've put up there on the screen for you, I, I, want to, I want this to be clear, because I noticed as I was reading commentators, most commentators are not afraid to address the three days, but very few commentators want to address what Jesus says about the three nights. And therein, lies, therein I think, lies the fatal uh, attack at the uh, Friday crucifixion theory. Uh, but there's also another difficulty, too. And then I'll kind of bring all my threads together and tie them up at the end for you. But but here's uh, something for you to think about. If you read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
you'll notice that the majority of those books, well, maybe not the majority, but large portions of those books focus on that last week, what we often call the Passion Week, from the time of the the, the triumphal entry, uh, which we often call Palm Sunday, to to the resurrection. So every moment of Passion Week seems to be accounted for in the Bible, but yet when the events of those days are actually pieced together, if you've ever tried to do that, uh, and put them into a, into a whole, what I've found is that one entire day and possibly two days are lacking. Now how can we explain that? Well, there are there have been some people who have tried to explain it. The dating of historical events, I've given you a little, uh, someone's diagram who's, who's tried to put the Passion Week together here. You notice that the Hebrew days don't exactly match up with our days. That's because, hopefully you already know this, 6 p.m. ended and started their day, not midnight. So that's why they're off, they're off kilter there. But the dating of historical events has been a complicated matter. Uh, and so what some people have done is they've tried to look at the solar and lunar eclipses and new moons and so forth to, to try to figure out various historical events. And uh, there is someone who, who, who used those various things to try to figure out the events of Christ's life as well. Now, before computers, this was virtually impossible. So in the 1970s, uh, thanks to computers, there was, there was a man who who did a lot of work. Uh, his name was Herman Goldstein. Uh, he, he, did a, he wrote a work called New and Full Moons. And some people have used that work to kind of help and, and to figure out what's going on in the Bible here. And Goldstein helped to date historical events by calculating the days of the week on which the Jewish Passover fell in any particular given year during Christ's lifetime as well as thereafter. And so if if such a calculation established a Saturday Passover and therefore a Friday crucifixion for any year near the time of Christ's death, then, then of course that would provide excellent support for the traditional theory. Interestingly enough, it doesn't. Now, I'm, I'm gaining, I'm gaining, uh, to, to be honest here, I'm gaining a lot of my thoughts from from other people who've looked at uh, Goldstein's work. Okay, I haven't actually read it myself, so bear with me here. So what happened in, instead, the, the day before Passover falls on a Friday only in the year A.D. 26. That's the only time, according to this particular book. And for, for most scholars, they believe that's actually too early for Christ's death. And then it happened again in the year A.D. 33. And, and again, according to most scholars, that's too late. So sometime between the year 26 and 33, what they tried to do was, was there a, a Passover that, fall, that fell on Friday between those dates? You, you, are you with me, class? So this is what they did. I know it, it might sound really complicated. Bear with me. All right? Believe it or not, there, there actually is one, there's only one year between those dates when there was a Friday Passover. I'll share that with you in a moment. So what are we to do with these problems? You say, well, I mean, I mean that, I don't care about all that stuff. 
right? That's the way some people are. Just give me the solution. I, I just want to know the facts. Well, I believe there is a solution. Uh, in fact, I was reading uh, uh, Dr. Uh, James Boyce's uh, commentary on Matthew, and it was, it was quite ha- helpful for me. So uh, here's some following thoughts on the dating of the Passion Week, all right? Uh, he says the, the solution is that two Sabbaths were involved in this last week of Christ's earthly ministry. Okay, that's part of the confusion. All right? A lot of times there's only one Sabbath, but uh, he believed there, there was actually two Sabbaths. Every so often there would be two Sabbaths. And so one of the regular weekly Sabbath, uh, of course, that well, that one fell on Saturday. But there was a second one, an extra Passover Sabbath, uh, where they would celebrate the Passover. And, of course, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was slain as Jews were killing lambs by the thousands. And that was no coincidence, of course. So there's a, a second extra Passover Sabbath, and, and in this particular week, it, it, it must have come on a Friday. It didn't always come on the same day. Now, let me be clear here, okay? Uh, the Passover Sabbath always came on the 15th of Nisan. All right, read your Old Testament. You'll see it always comes on the 15th of Nisan. And uh, so there, therefore, naturally, it would fall on a different day of the week in different years. It's, it's a bit like Christmas, okay? Uh, of course, we know Christmas is always on the 25th of December, right? But it doesn't always fall on the same day of the week. Well, guess what? Passover Sabbath was the same. However, it was always observed as a Sabbath. And so here's the conclusion, all right? Jesus was crucified on a Thursday, and he arose from the grave sometime before dawn on Sunday morning. All right, that's one conclusion. And so if that conclusion is correct, what does that suggestion do for the problems that that I've already talked about earlier? What does it actually do? What does it do to the uh, result of the traditional dating? Well, what it does actually is it eliminates those other problems if you believe Christ died on a Thursday. Let's just talk about that quickly, okay? And then we'll move on. Uh, first of all, the Bible says there are actually three days and three nights. That's what we read in, in uh, Matthew chapter 12 here, right? Jesus said three days and three nights, just like Jonah. And so this is provided for if Jesus died on a Thursday afternoon. The Bible says it was about 3 o'clock. So that's obviously before their next Jewish day starts. Therefore, the hours from 3 p.m. until dusk actually qualify as the first day. Uh, Jews didn't, you know, they had this saying, you you don't need a whole 24 hours for it to be called a day, right? We, We, even in our own language, we do that. And so this period is followed by Thursday night. Then you have Friday. Friday night, that's the second night. Saturday is the third day. And then Saturday night is the third night. And, of course, that's a total of three days and three nights. So can you see how if you go with a Thursday afternoon crucifixion, it matches up with with what Jesus is saying about three days and three nights? Okay. Uh, Let me just go quickly through each day of the week of of Passion Week, all right? Because the Bible talks heaps about this, all right? 
So as, as you're looking at this, you'll, you'll see some of these things. So if you kind of a, rearrange your thoughts and come away from, a, from the theory that Christ died on a Friday, kind of move to the theory of Thursday, let, let's see if it fits, okay? Uh, Saturday, that's the Saturday before he was in the grave. That was a Jewish Sabbath, and Jesus, uh, since he did follow the law, probably would not have traveled on that day. And so the Bible says he would have remained in Bethany, which is where he was staying, and he would have uh, remained there with his disciples. Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem, as we know, riding on the donkey. That's known as Palm Sunday, and then he goes into the temple area for a while, and then he returned back to Bethany. Monday, Jesus returns to Jerusalem, and we have that, that amazing story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And then he cleanses the temple for the second time, and then he returns to Bethany again. Tuesday, on the way back to Jerusalem, the disciples saw the fig tree that Jesus cursed, and then Jesus gives his explanation. And then when he goes into the city, Christ says the day is coming when the temple will be torn down. And then on the way home, Jesus paused on the Mount of Olives and he preached that amazing sermon, which we often call the Olivet Discourse. And then on Wednesday, Jesus and the disciples had the Last Supper together there in the upper room. And then on his way back to Bethany again, he, he uh, stopped there in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew he had a divine appointment with Judas and the Roman soldiers. And so he allowed himself to be arrested. Then Thursday, Jesus is tried. He's crucified. And then darkness covers the land. It says there's that, that, that miracle, the eclipse, uh, from noon to 3 p.m., right in the middle of the day. The brightest time of the day, there's an eclipse. So Jesus is then buried on that same evening by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And then uh, the women, you remember the Bible mentions those various women who wanted to anoint Jesus, and, and they wanted to bring spices, but they couldn't because it was now the Sabbath. Okay? So they knew they couldn't do that work, so they didn't do that, and so they had to wait. And then Friday and Saturday, the body of Jesus remained in the tomb, and the women and the disciples observed two Sabbaths, and then Jesus arose, and of course, they came, and, they, and the disciples and the women came, and they saw an empty tomb. So what about the day of Christ's crucifixion then, you might ask? What about that? Well, the day before Passover is, of course, the 14th of Nisan, and that did not fall on a Friday between the years 26 and 33. However, uh, Goldstein figured it out that uh, the 14th of Nisan fell on a Thursday once, only once, between those dates. And I'm not saying this is, this is not inspired, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But it, interestingly enough, Goldstein said it happened on the year 30. On the year 30. And so we may conclude with reasonable certainty then that the crucifixion of Jesus is to be dated as April the 6th, A.D. 30. And the resurrection is dated April the 9th. So I say all that to hopefully kind of clear up some uh, misconceptions. I hope it clears up the misconceptions that some people have about this passage and others. Well, let me just give you a little bit of application, thinking about what Jesus has said here in this 
conflict between him and the scribes and Pharisees. Number one, don't close your mind to the evidence. Don't close your mind to the evidence. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did. They had seen the miracles Jesus had performed. They they heard many of the truths that Jesus had taught, yet they refused that evidence. And what did they do here? They, they actually demanded a sign. They demanded a heavenly sign from Jesus. And so no wonder what Jesus does next is he actually proclaims judgment. So why should you be concerned? Why should you be concerned? Well, let me put it this way. A closed mind always leads one to false conclusions. If you close your mind, you it will lead you to false conclusions. So, don't fall for the old syndrome. You may have heard this syndrome. You know, hey, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with facts. Right? You ever heard that? My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with facts. Please don't be that way. All right? That's a, that is a an incredibly dangerous road to go down. Number two. Number two, make Jesus' resurrection central to your life and ministry. Make Jesus' resurrection central to your life and ministry. Jesus taught about his resurrection. He believed it. It happened. It was a real event. And by the way, it is one of the fundamentals of the faith. And in fact, the Bible says in Romans 10, you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead in order to be saved. That's what the Bible says. And so the apostles, they also preached Christ's resurrection. They didn't get it at first, by the way, but afterward, they were the greatest proponents of Christ's resurrection, and they they died for it. The apostle Paul said in Corinthians that it is of first importance So my friend, my friend, tell unbelievers that Christ not only died, but He rose. Preach the gospel to yourself, including the resurrection. Preach the gospel to other believers as well. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. Christ arose, and when He arose, He he not only conquered Satan, but He conquered sin. He conquered death. So encourage your fellow believers with the good news that Christ is risen. Use it in your gospel presentations. Use it as you witness to unbelievers. Tell them that Christ died by all means. But tell them that He is alive. He is risen. Just as He said He would. Let's move on. We see in our our text here that the king gives examples of judgment. He gives examples of judgment. They, They would not believe. They rejected the Messiah and so Christ gives examples of judgment here. Let's look at them. And, and he actually has two examples of judgment. Look at verse 41. Because in verse 41, we have the example of the people of Nineveh. So Jesus is, is continuing the illustration, the event of Jonah. He actually went to Nineveh. He preached repentance. So, so look what it says here in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the first example is the people of Nineveh. 
Now the imagery of those words that Jesus uses there, rise up, and the word judgment is describing the final resurrection at the last judgment. Jesus is describing the Ninevites here as witnesses against the unbelief of the Jews. Ouch. (laughs) Okay. That hurts if you know anything about a Jew. Okay. Uh, Remember, Ninevites, the Ninevite, or the, you know, those Ninevites were Gentiles. Jews didn't like the Gentiles. And uh, so this is kind of like the ultimate slap in the face, the ultimate insult, if you will. So Jesus is saying, those Gentiles, those Ninevites, will witness against you for your unbelief. Why? Because the Bible says that Nineveh repented after Jonah preached judgment to them. They actually repented. And repentance means they, they turned from their sin to God. So Jesus said they will actually be legal witnesses against this Jewish generation of Jesus' day. Why? Because they refused to turn from their sin to God. Now, did you notice what Jesus said about himself here? That is an amazing statement. You just have to look at that and say, wow. Jesus says he is greater than the prophet Jonah. Now, that's, that's, that's a pretty amazing statement. I mean, we have a guy who gets swallowed alive. He's in the belly of this creature for three days and three nights. He gets spit up on land. He goes to this huge, powerful city, preaches reluctantly, and they repent, including the king. That's amazing. And everyone's amazed. How can they do that? God did it. But Jesus is saying, I'm greater. I am greater. And so as great as that prophet was, Jesus is even greater than the prophet Jonah. Now I'll come back to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that and use some other things here in a moment. But uh, let's move on to the second example. The, the second example is in verse 42, and it's, he's talking about the queen of Sheba. Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, you can find that story in 1 Kings chapter 10. I hope you're familiar with that. Where the queen of Sheba comes to King Solomon. She's heard about Solomon's wisdom, and she has all these hard questions for Solomon and he apparently did an amazing job in answering them. And so, so just as she had these hard questions, the Jewish religious leaders, they're doing the same thing. But the difference is, she's coming to Solomon seeking truth, but they're not really interested in the truth. That is, the religious leaders are not really interested in the truth. And so at the final judgment, Jesus says, the queen of Sheba will rise up and bear witness against this generation of Jesus' day who rejected Jesus as Messiah and King of Kings. And by the way, this is the third time here in chapter 12 that Jesus says he's greater than something else. And in case you forgot the first one, uh, you can find that in verse 6. So if you take verse 6, verse 41, verse 42, combine those three together, Jesus is is saying that he is fulfilling the offices of prophet, priest, and king. 
because he said he was greater than the temple in Jerusalem in verse 6. He's saying he's greater than the priests and their whole sacrificial system. He's greater than the prophet. He's greater than even King Solomon. So therefore, he is the greatest fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king, or the temple. Let's move on. Because we see that Jesus then proceeds to teach a parable about demons. You say, well, what is the point here? Why is he teaching about demons? Well, this particular parable that Jesus gives uh, is, is talking about the results of the Jewish rejection of Christ. They rejected, for the most part, their Messiah. What is the result of that? Well, Jesus gives the result in story form here. All right? Look at verse 43, because he says that the, the demon departs this person. In verse 43, look what Jesus says. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Now, notice it says he's, the, the, this demon's seeking to find rest. D- don't know exactly why, but the demon makes the decision eventually because he can't find rest, to go back to the person from whom he had left. Now, this is kind of scary when you think about this story for a moment. Think what Jesus is teaching here, because the person does not seem to have the power to stop the demon from returning. When the demon decides he's coming back, this person cannot stop the demon. That's kind of scary. And it's interesting what Jesus says here, because upon returning, the demon finds two things. Number one, look at this. He finds the person is even better than before the demon was in the person. The Bible says he's clean, he's orderly, and the the neon sign is flashing. Vacancy, vacancy, vacancy. He's ready for occupancy, in other words. All right? Number two, the person is empty and ready for the taking, Jesus says. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. The person has been freed, but in the process there's just a vacuum there. He's left spiritually empty. Obviously doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Now, why are the, because Jesus is talking about the Jews here. Why is Jesus saying the Jews are empty? Why do you think he's saying that? It's because they rejected Jesus. That's why he's saying it. They rejected Jesus Christ. That's why they're empty. And third, we see that the demon returns to possess the person. But notice he doesn't just come back by himself here. He actually brings more in verse 45. Look at verse 45. Oh, sorry, I forgot to read verse 44. Verse 44 says, Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, And when it comes, that's the demon, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then look what happens in verse 45. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So the demons, the demon returns with other demons. Now, 
with parables, you need to be careful that you don't read too much into them. Uh, often with parables, we get all kinds of strange interpretations, especially if you start allegorizing them. So don't don't read too much in this. The point of this is not to have an exhaustive uh, doctrine of demons coming from this passage. That's not the point Jesus was making. Uh, besides, you remember, th- this is a story. It is a parable, and many of the details weren't were not meant to teach theology. Jesus did have a point in this. Uh, for example, the for example, look at the number seven. All right, the number seven in Scripture usually stresses completeness. Usually, the idea of completeness. And so, what is the point? Well, Jesus is saying, basically, we have a full group of demons coming here. The full group of demons. They are complete. Now, why are there more demons? You ask. Well, the person's got room for more demons. And and the first demon who was originally inhabiting the person is welcome to invite his friends, so to speak. Sadly, they're worse than him. And so he's he's been empty for so long, and so the demon comes back to invite his friends, and sadly, they're a very unsavory group. It's uh, the, the the illustration I was thinking of. It's a bit like some gang member, you know, going and inviting the rest of his gang members to come and and uh, it, come into a, an abandoned home. That's kind of what they're doing. And Jesus says the result here is it's actually worse than the first. He's actually worse off than the first. And, and the point is that Israel had experienced a great cleansing when God the Father sent His Son, the Messiah. But what did they do with His Son? They rejected Him, for the most part. Refused to repent. And that's why Jesus says that this generation is filled with evil. They're adulterous. They are spiritually unfaithful. And so it's an an empty house. It's an empty house. And Jesus says there's even greater evil to come. And so what what is there left? There's nothing before them but the grimmest of prospects then. What, What a horrible picture. Well, what application can we possibly get from this? Well... Here's one thing I thought of. My friends, by all means evangelize, but don't ignore discipleship. By all means evangelize, but don't ignore discipleship. Remember, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is not to evangelize. The Great Commission is not to be a witness for Christ. The command in Matthew 28 is to make disciples of all nations. In other words, what I'm saying is evangelism without discipleship is actually unbiblical. It's unbiblical. Now, we don't want to be guilty of, so to speak, casting out demons and then fail to fill the house with the Spirit of God. That's kind of the idea here, right? If, if you lead somebody to Christ, you want them to be filled with the Spirit. You want them to move on into verse Matthew 28, verse 20, and to obey all the commands of Christ. So my friend, I have a request for you. Would you pray with me that we would protect our church from the market-driven, seeker-friendly approach that often allows non-Christians to feel comfortable? Non-Christians should not feel comfortable. Well, Jesus ends this passage by talking about his new family. 
The king defines his new family here, and and if you're wondering, well, why am I including this in the context? It's because look at the first few words of verse 46. Because verse 46 says, while he was still speaking. While he was still speaking. This is included in the context, therefore. So what do we have here? Well, let's read it, all right? Uh, Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. But whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now Jesus is using the imagery of his family, his his earthly family, to talk about something that to him is even more important than his earthly family. Now let me be careful here. Jesus is not saying earthly families unimportant. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there is something even greater than earthly family. And so the imagery of Jesus' family here, notice where they are, by the way. They are outside, and then somebody else has to come in and bring this news to Jesus, is is showing this, this, well, it's an imagery here. Let me put it that way. It's a, a literal event, and Jesus is using that to teach something. Jesus was inside the house. He's addressing the group. Who's the group? Well, it's composed of the disciples and some other people that could fit in there. And by the way, there's no mention here of the fact that Jesus' brothers were unbelievers at this stage. But however, if you look at other portions of Scripture, we know, based on the book of John, that even Jesus' brothers were unbelievers, which is probably one reason they weren't there listening to Jesus' teaching. But nevertheless, they're concerned for Jesus and they're coming. They can see the opposition and the rejections building. And they're, they're, they're thinking, this, this is not good. And so they come and they want to help Jesus, their brother. So there's, in other words, there's this implicit outside, inside setting that is very fitting here. One author said it this way, quote, The word outside says that Jesus' family was deliberately outside the orbit of Jesus' actual intimate teaching ministry. They are outsiders, near to, but not insiders. This position is exactly the dangerous situation of emptiness warned of in the preceding story. End quote. You see the danger? They knew Jesus. But they weren't insiders. They're not sitting at Jesus' feet listening to Jesus' teaching. They're outside. It's a dangerous position to be in. So look at Jesus' response. How did Jesus respond to His mother and brothers coming? Well, verse 49 says, when Jesus heard this, He stretched out His hand. It's it's an interesting phrase. Stretched out His hand. It's it's a strong gesture. Um, don't, don't think uh, just uh, of Jesus pointing at his disciples. You know, it, it's more than that. Uh, it actually connotes protection by a higher power. Uh, it may indicate that they actually stand under Jesus' care. That's the idea. He, he's saying, I'm going to protect you. You're mine. 
In other words, they're his new family. They are a part of this new messianic community. And look at the word whoever is significant in verse 50. Whoever. Whoever, of course, stresses universe, something that's universal. It's a universal relationship. It's not just for those twelve. Not just for the people in the crowd. This is for anyone. Anyone can be part of Jesus' new family. And so it's significant that Jesus, at the end of verse 20 here, He includes the word sister. Did you notice that? Because Jesus didn't actually have a sister come. Did you see that? There was no sister there. But Jesus says sister at the end of verse 50. Why would He do that? Because Jesus wants to be all-inclusive. Lest you ladies feel like you're being left out for some reason, Jesus is including you. Jesus is saying, you, my sister, can be included and belong to my family. Not just mothers and brothers, but sisters as well. So he's being all-inclusive of the relationships within this new family of God. Verse 50, by the way, also gives us the requirement for Jesus' new family. How can you belong to this new family? You say, this is great. How can I belong? Look what Jesus says. He says, whoever does the will of God. In other words, this is not a works-based salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. That clearly contradicts Scripture. Jesus is saying that His disciples must obey His commands and live those according to His principles. That is someone who belongs to His family. So it's not, in other words, it's not just enough to profess faith in Christ. Jesus says you must live it. So let me give you some application and we'll be done. Number one, if you lose your earthly family, God will give you a new family. Alright? God will give you a new family. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, it seems that Jesus has left his family outside the house here as like a, it's a teaching illustration in a way, isn't it? As a metaphor. It was, it literally was an illustration. And Jesus said, I have a family that is deeper and more important. And in this case, he's referring to his little band of disciples there that were in that room. Praise God. Number two, your closest family should be your church family. Your closest family should be your church family. Now, if your earthly family is also a part of your church family, then you can praise God for that, because that is a wonderful blessing that unfortunately not everybody gets to enjoy. All right? Are you with me here, class? Because I'm saying that your earthly family can be outside of Jesus' family. Unless they put their faith in Christ alone, they're outside of Jesus' spiritual family. And so praise God when the two can be one. That is a blessing. But it's not always the case. So you might ask this. How do you know which family group is the closest to you? How do you know which one's closest to you? Take this personally, okay? Well, the answer is it really lies in your affections, doesn't it? It lies in your affections, okay? Uh, by all means, love your earthly family, whether or not they're believers or not. You should still love them. Jesus believes that, but... Jesus also said that that our affection and our love 
for our spiritual family, and, and particularly for him, is greater. In fact, our love for Jesus should look at almost like we hate. It's, it's, in other words, it's supposed to be lesser than our love for Him. So look at your affections. Ask God to examine your heart. I mean, uh, w- which group do you spend your spare time with? If, if you have some spare time, where are you going to spend that time? Uh, that might be one question you could ask. Or, uh, you know, if you got some spare cash on hand, uh, w- which group are you going to spend your mo- that spare cash on? Uh, by all means, do not neglect your earthly family. God says you're worse than an infidel if you do. But uh, where does your spare money go? Those are some things that show where our affections lie. Your spiritual family should include a deeper intimacy, should include more sharing, greater care, and you should strive to spend as much time as you can with them without neglecting your other priorities as well. So you're, what I'm saying is this, your schedule should include time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the way, not just on Sunday. If, it, if your schedule only includes Sunday, you've got a problem. You're neglecting something that's very important to Jesus Christ. So how are you doing in this area? You need to rearrange your schedule to make time for what is important to God? If you do, by all means, do so. My last application is this. Be a disciple by learning from Jesus and then doing what he says. <laughs> Jesus said to a disciple, the one who is in my family, this new family is one who does the will of my Father. And so this truth is really at the heart of Jesus' teaching here in the book of Matthew. We see it throughout the book. And so it's clear that a disciple is one who is identified as one who lives out what Jesus teaches. Not just somebody who listens, but one who lives it out, who who obeys. And so in this particular event, the disciples, where are they? They're inside the house. They're sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, learning, submitting to His will. So discipleship is simply this. It's just learning the commands of Jesus Christ and then obediently practicing those commands in your daily life. That's all it is. It's not that complicated, really. We often make it more complicated than it should be. It's just learning the commands of Christ and then obediently practicing those out in our everyday lives. So my friend, let me ask you this. If you're one of those quasi-Christians who attends church but never obeys, then Jesus says you're not a disciple You're not in his family, and you you have to realize that you are in great danger. And so if you don't want to stand before Christ on Judgment Day, and if you don't want Jesus to tell you, I never knew you, depart from me, then guess what? You've got to come to Christ. Believe, trust, accept by faith in his finished work for you, and do what he commands you to do. Well, may God give you the grace to know which family you belong to and be totally committed to it.